Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. No. It's like the first word most children learn, right? No. There's times as a father that I find myself shouting no at the top of my lungs. I think my son's head just perked up, maybe. Uh, It's usually when my children are about to do something that will harm them or someone else. No, don't run with the kitchen knife. No, don't beat the dog with the wiffle ball bat. No. Typically when I say no to my children, it's for their good, and it's done out of fatherly love. If there are things that I will never say no to, Dad, can we sing a hymn? I will not say no. Dad, can I have a hug? Dad, do you love me? These questions will always be answered with a yes. There will always be times where I have to say, absolutely, because I love my children. Well, there are times maybe when I've lost my voice and can't sing at that moment, or I already have two other children in my arms, I can't respond and hug you right now. That does not change the answer that yes, I will. Sometimes my children have to wait for my yes and to trust that I love them and I will carry through in what I say. And this applies to us as Christians. There are things that we ask for as Christians that God will say no to. Yet there are also those things that God will only answer yes to when we ask them by faith in Jesus. And that's what we're focusing on today, those things that are against God's law, or those things that would bring ultimate harm to our faith in Jesus, God will say no. That's what we learn in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, Thy will be done. It says, uh, in Luther's explanation, it says, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come but also when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is God's good and gracious will. So we think about this. What is God's will? Well, God's will is that we believe in Jesus, have our sins forgiven, and be saved. And so when the Christian, with a firm faith in the person and the work of Jesus, cries out to God, Lord, have mercy on me, we must expect that God will be merciful. That is what Jesus is teaching us when he asks, says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, a knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. He's not speaking about every physical and personal comfort that we ask for from God, but he's speaking of the mercy of God. He's speaking of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. He's speaking of the forgiveness of sins that faithful Christians cry out for every day. When we say, Lord, have mercy upon us, Christ, have mercy upon us, Lord, have mercy upon us. That is what God is promising through his prophet Isaiah. As he says, a bruised reed I will not break, and a faintly burning wick I will not quench. I will faithfully bring forth justice. He's saying that those who are crushed by the weight of their sins will not be denied the mercy that they cry out for when they cry out for it for the sake of Jesus who died for them. 
God will surely help them. God is merciful. God is loving. And that's what brings us to the Canaanite woman today. She continually cries out to the Lord for help. She doesn't resent. She, Jesus had left the Jewish country and he journeyed north of Galilee to the land of Tyre and Sidon. And historically, this was always the dwelling place of the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans. Tyre and Sidon were places where Baal was worshipped in the Old Testament. And certainly at this time, they'd probably been Greek Hellenized, and they've probably been Romanized a bit, so that they've accepted the pantheons of the Roman gods and the Greek gods, and they adopted their worship as well. Of course, St. Paul teaches us what pagan worship actually is. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be a participant with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. And so as we look at the worship of the people in Tyre and Sidon, who are they worshiping? Demons. And so it should come as no surprise that this Canaanite woman's daughter was severely oppressed by a demon. That is who they worshiped in that country. They bowed down to their false gods, they offered sacrifices and praise, they trusted in them and placed their faith in them. They cried out to the demons for help, except the demons do not help. Their only desire is to destroy, and that is what they do. They can only attempt to undo, to pervert, and to break what God has done. And so the Canaanite woman, well, she's come to see this. And she's seeing the falsehood of the worship of her people. And she's seeing the fallenness of the culture that she dwells in. And she's seeing the hell that it leads to. She knows that her cries to her false god are false. And somehow in the midst of all of this, though, she's also come to know the God of Israel. The true God who desires her good does exist and is willing to help her. She also knew that the God of this people, Israel, has come into her town. Somehow she had come to know about Jesus. Perhaps she heard about the feeding of the 5,000 or how he healed all the sick people or how he had, in fact, cast out demons in all the other Gentile areas that he had passed through. But all she knew is that she was sick of the afflictions that her so-called gods produced in her life. She knew that the Messiah had come, and she had heard that he will help. We must consider for a moment what a leap of faith that really was. Did she really think that she could take part in the son of David? Did she really believe that he would help her? She was a Gentile. That was a long shot. The Gentiles were certainly not counted as part of God's Israel in the Old Testament. They were not the children of Abraham. They laid no claim to the promises of the Savior. This most likely what was bothering the disciples as she was calling out for Jesus. It was not how annoying she was being. That was probably part of it. But it really was that she had the gall to ask Jesus for help. He was their Jesus, not her Jesus. He was the Messiah for the Jews. He had come to establish the kingdom of Israel. He had come to fulfill what was promised to them. And on top of it all, oh, she was a woman. 
What an unseemly thing for a woman to approach a man openly and in public, especially a foreigner. Why would she, an outsider, a Gentile, and a woman, think she has any claim on the son of David? How offensive. And above all, like every child of Adam, this woman was a sinner. And if she knew anything about the God of Israel, it would have been that the God of Israel despises sin. So much that he would punish and chasten his own people for the sins they committed against him. Exile, destruction even of their own temple, famines, and droughts. All of these things were God's discipline against Israel for their sins. Psalm 5 says, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate the evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And so according to God, sinners deserve destruction. This is the reason why God commands that uh, 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 the, the people destroy all the inhabitants of Canaan in the book of Joshua. It was because they worshipped idols. It's because they violated the law of God that was written in their hearts and they needed to be destroyed. St. Paul rails against this sort of idolatry, too. He says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're filled of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of all sorts of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on all who practice such things. And so this woman a sinner, this woman, a Gentile, this woman, a former worshiper of idols, now comes to Jesus and cries out for help. Yet faith does not dwell on the reasons why God would not help. Faith trusts in God's willingness to help. Faith trusts in what God says about himself. Faith trusts that God is also gracious and merciful and abounding in love. And so the woman calls out all the more, Lord, help me. And to prove her faith and strengthen it, Jesus tests her. She cries out at first, and Jesus seems to ignore her. What does she do? Does she stop? Does she give up at the first sign of his indifference? No, she keeps calling out for help. Lord Jesus, have mercy, son of David, have mercy. And that becomes so offensive to the disciples that they plead that Jesus would send her away. And Jesus says to her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And it's as if he were saying, sorry, I can't help you. You don't qualify for my benefits. You're a Gentile. Nothing I can do about it. Go home. She does not believe it for a second. 
She does not believe this for one moment. She knows that God is merciful to sinners. She has heard that the God of Israel said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgressions of sins. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. She knew and maybe have heard that the Psalms teach how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so she sees the Lord is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. She knows that God forgives the transgressions of those who call upon him. And she cries out all the more, Lord, help me. Jesus applies a little pressure, saying, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oh, adding insult to injury. He not only says no, but he calls her a dog. This is the point where any normal person would have said, Fine. Stomped their foot, left in a huff. How dare you insult me? How dare you wound my pride? You have no room for me. How about this? I have no room for you. But not this woman. She knows. She knows that she is a sinner. She knows the God of the Canaanites, the gods of the nations, will not help her, but they're the ones who are actually afflicting her, causing her daughter to suffer. She shows, she knows she's not worthy of any form of kindness from Jesus. She knows it doesn't depend upon her worthiness either. She also knows that Jesus is gracious and he will help her. And so she concedes and says, you're right. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. It's like she's saying, yes, Jesus, I know I am a dog. I'm not worthy of a single one of your blessings. And I know it. I know I'm a Gentile. I know I'm a sinner. I know I don't deserve a single bit of your kindness. And I know who you are. I know that you are here as a Savior and a Redeemer, and I know that you will have compassion on me. And if I cannot eat at your table, I'll be satisfied with whatever crumbs fall from it because I know they'll be good for me. Even if it's just the crumbs, I'll take them because you're good. Think about that. To this Jesus replies, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. In the book of Hebrews, we learn that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And this is true. Faith is sure of what cannot be seen. Faith believes in those things that are contrary to reason and experience. Faith looks at Jesus and cannot see anything other than a loving God. We see the promised Christ who dies for the sins of the world and knows that it's the will of God to help and care for us. God will bless. He does. Because we are saved by the righteous work of this Jesus who forgives our sins. We live in Christ and we are blessed by God. There's no denying it. Any person here today who hears the gospel, any person here today who has heard that you are forgiven for the sake of Jesus, you are blessed by God. God loves sinners like you and me. We simply need to look to the cross, we look to the resurrection and the empty tomb, and we know that God does not desire our destruction. 
He loves us, and he blesses us in faith. And this is true even though we may face some hardships in this life. While there may be times that it feels like God is ignoring us or even intentionally punishing us, we know differently by faith. He is chastening his Christians to strengthen their faith. It says in Hebrews, Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Because in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So often we think of discomfort as a negative thing, a net negative, a net bad in this world. Yet every father who is worth his salt disciplines his children. If he didn't, he would be considered negligent. And the same goes for us as Christians. There are times when our God allows us to experience discomfort. And this is not a sign that God abandons us. But this is a sign that he cares for us. When various trials and struggles befall a Christian, God is not abandoning you. No, he's strengthening you. He's strengthening you in his word. Our reason for believing this is rooted in what God has done for us already. How do we know that Jesus loved the Canaanite woman? It would have seemed that the answer to that question, do you love me, would be no. It would have seemed that Jesus did not regard her people with any sort of love and that he wanted her to suffer. And we indeed are going to struggle in this life. And in those struggles, our faith may be put to the test. And we might have to ask the question, does God really love me? And the answer, if I focus on how I feel, if I focus on what am I experiencing, might feel like a solid no. But in the midst of it all, we are blessed with God's yes. Yes, the Canaanite woman was one of the children of Israel. Yes, she was a child at the master's table and not a dog desperate for crumbs. Yes, Christ was born to fulfill all righteousness in human flesh. Yes, Christ dies for the forgiveness of our sins. Yes, Christ has risen from the dead and promised life to all who hold fast in him in faith. Where everything might seem like a resounding no... From God, we have an overpowering yes in Christ. And it's because of Christ that we do not need to reshape and reorder our God. Christ is sufficient as God's yes. Yes is demonstrated for us on the cross. Jesus dies for sinners. That is our assurance that God has nothing but perfect love for us. 
We are sinners for whom Christ has died. Are there any further signs that you need from God that would assure you that he loves you? Nothing would measure up. No amount of comfort. Not if God gave into your hand every earthly comfort, every bit of wealth, every pure and perfect power over all of the creation that would never measure up to the perfect gift of love that God has given you as his son is placed on the cross to die. Having all of these things would actually likely cause us to become arrogant and prideful. We must know that our sinful selves are so weak that sometimes one inkling of physical blessing might be enough to drive us into the madness of materialism, pride, and the love of pleasure. Who knows? Other than God. If the material blessings that we long for may not destroy our faith in Jesus. And so we content ourselves in God's discipline knowing that it's good for us. And Jesus God promises eternal life for all who believe in him. And God does not want us to lose sight of this. He desires to strengthen his Christians. Jesus tells the church in Revelation chapter 3, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And God in his love, he chastens us. He does this to strengthen our faith. In 1 Peter we're taught, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, might be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. Faith in Christ is more precious than gold. And how is gold refined? Well, it's thrown into a fire. And then this, the dross is burnt away, and what remains is more pure, more precious, more valuable. And so does God temper our own hearts. He purifies us and strengthens us he strips us of all false hope and confidence. He allows us to undergo certain trials and struggles in this life. Why? So that we learn to cling to nothing but the gospel of Jesus. He doesn't want us to have any confidence in things of this world. Rather, he wants us to see how all the hopes that this world considers joyful and good are futile compared to the hope and promise of the gospel. It's foolish to hope for anything else. Faith that endures through struggle, it's strengthened. Like steel that is tempered in the forge and by the crucible, faith that endures through suffering and struggle endures even into the last day. So faith doesn't trust in experience. Faith doesn't hear and see difficulty in this life and say, God must be saying no to me. Faith trusts in Christ. It looks to him as the one who can and will help. And even if it seems like Christ is unwilling to show us any compassion, and he won't offer us any aid, we see things through the lens of the cross of Jesus. We see that God has nothing but perfect love for his people. And so if the Lord gives us difficulty, we can know he's giving it to us for our good. If the Lord sees fit to bless us and relieve us from pain and sorrow, we know it's for our good. If the Lord then turns and throws us into pain and challenges that tempt us to question his love for us, we know that it is good, and we cling to him by faith in his promises. 
As Psalm 103 says, He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. And so we cling to Christ. We trust in his mercy, even if our circumstances will cause us to doubt. Well, why? We know God loves sinners. He will never turn away from those who call upon him for mercy. Now, Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. He did not cast out the Canaanite woman, and neither will he cast you out as you call upon him in faith and trust in his promises. Let us pray. Lord, have mercy. Assure us of the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus and cause us to cling to his promises, even if they seem distant. Give us comfort in your word, our baptism, and the Holy Supper, so that we know that for Jesus' sake, you are always merciful and gracious to us. And help us to view our lives through the lens of the cross of Jesus, knowing that you care, even in our trials. And whatever you set before us is good for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds into true faith and to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise.